If you are here in the room or watching at home, please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4, we started a series last week that we're calling Truth Seekers. In a world of a million opinions about what is true, whether it's theological opinions or political opinions or COVID opinions or whatever it may be, there is a world of opinions out there, and it can be very difficult to figure out what's true and what's not, especially when they contradict one another. How can you tell when you're watching the news, and this news source says this, and that one says that, and this politician says this, and that one says that, and this preacher's saying this, but that preacher's saying something different, and this doctor has this opinion, but that doctor has a different opinion. How do you know what's true? It's overwhelming. And it can be tempting to want to just throw in the towel and say, I can't figure it out. There's just too much to sort through. But we are called to do more than that as followers of Jesus. We are called to be seekers of the truth. And so we want to take the fall just to talk very practically about how do we do that with all the voices vying for our attention, with all the opinions out there in this world. How can we sort through it all and find truth in the midst of all of these things? Because truth is crucially important to us. The word of God says that as we get closer to the end of days, as we get closer to Christ's return, that there will be more and more deception in this world, that there will be more and more things that will deceive even God's people that can lead us astray. And so if that is true, then we need to be able to tell the difference, right? We need to be able to pick truth out. We need to be discerning people if we are to be a Christ-like people. Canada doesn't tend to elevate its war heroes in the same way that Americans typically do. Uh, we're a bit more modest, maybe, in the way we approach the world. But I think honor is due, uh, and honor should be given when that is the case. So one of our Canadian war heroes is Isaac Brock. And so Isaac Brock uh, fought in the War of 1812. We were still Britain at that point. We weren't an independent country yet. And Isaac Brock was British. He came from the British Isles, and he had come here to help defend Canada. So in the War of 1812, the Americans felt for many years like Britain had been bullying them and had been taking advantage of them, and there were a lot of incidents and frustrations that built up to the point where finally America declared war on Britain. And America was not set up to cross the ocean and fight England there, but Canada was still British, and Canada was right here, so Britain's plan was we will invade and take over Canada. Now, obviously, we are not American, so obviously, we won the war. Woohoo! Go Canada! Some of you would rather be American, I think, but we're Canadian, so that's just tough. And so Isaac Brock was a big part of that defense. And so America tried to invade here, where we live, through Windsor-Essex, and they also tried to invade in the Niagara region. They came across the Niagara River there, and Brock fought on both sides. But for the purposes of the story, we'll focus on here. So many of you have been to Fort Malden on class field trips or whatever in Amherstburg. That's where the British forces were based. There was also an American fort on the American American side of the river up in Detroit called Fort Detroit. And so when America declared war, they invaded Canada across the river and they started marching towards Fort Malden in Amherstburg. Brock went out to repel them and they pushed them back. The Americans fell back and went back across the river and holed up in the fort. Brock decides to press his advantage. Now he doesn't have a lot of advantages because there were far more American soldiers. The Americans had more guns. They had better guns and the Americans were well situated in the fort to be there for a long time. Brock didn't have nearly enough troops. He has a handful of Canadian troops, and then there were some First Nations warriors as well, led by Chief Tecumseh. You might remember that name. And so together they went and surrounded the fort. Now, where everything changed 
was where the British caught some letters that had been sent out of the fort. The Americans were looking for help, and so they had sent letters out to different forts in the area saying, hey, the British are here, come and help us. And so those fell into British hands. And so Brock got to read the letters that the American general was sending out. And one of the things that the American general let loose in these letters was that he was personally terrified of the First Nations warriors. He was terrified of them. They had this fearsome reputation. And, and so Brock, finding that, decides to play upon that fear. And in playing upon that fear, he took the First Nations warriors, who were really just a few hundred. There were thousands of soldiers in the fort, but there were a few hundred First Nations warriors. And he had them walk around the fort in a circle uh, over and over and over again. And so there were woods around the fort, and they went through the woods around and around. And so for anyone looking out, it looked like an endless line of, of... warriors were encircling the fort. It was just the same ones going around over and over again, but it looked like there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And so the Americans get nervous. Uh, They send a letter to Brock and say, okay, we would like to consider surrendering. We would like three days in order to get our thoughts together and figure out how we might surrender. And Brock fired a letter back saying, three days? You have three hours, and if you don't do it, I'm going to let loose the First Nations warriors, and I don't know what they're going to do. And the Americans surrendered without firing a shot. Instantly. Instantly. And deception is a part of warfare. That's a part of what happens. I'm not saying it's a good thing. We believe lying is a sin, but it is what happens in warfare. And it was something that caused the Americans to give up, even though they didn't have the truth on their side. Even though it was completely not based in facts, they believed it. And as they believed it, they gave up the fort without firing a shot. And it was so scandalous that the American general got court-martialed at the end of it because they said, how did you give up? You didn't even try. You didn't even try to defend it. You just gave up based on bad information. But it just goes to show how powerful a lie can be. And the amount of damage that a lie can be, and the amount of damage that a lie can do, I mean, and how we as the people of God don't want to be people who fall for things. We want to be people who know the truth, who walk in the truth, and know how to discern the truth. The American general had a lot of fear in his life. That fear caused him to believe something that wasn't true. If he had enough presence of mind to say, you know what, I've got some fear in this area, and maybe I'm not thinking clearly, maybe things would have gone differently, but he wasn't able to do that. And so what we're talking about today is in our search for truth, we are all bringing a lot of ourself to that search. And some of the things in ourself might be good godly qualities that he's developing in us, and a lot of the things might not be good qualities at all. But we're all bringing a lot of ourself to the search for truth. Truth is perfect. Right? God's truth is perfect. God's word is perfect. God's spirit is perfect. Truth is perfect. We who are searching for truth are not perfect. Right? We are sinners, and we have baggage, and we are wired a certain way. We are not. We are broken. We are flawed individuals. And so we want to be able to be the people who can pick the lie out and and notice a lie for what it is and not receive it as truth. Because the devil's a liar. Amen? We used to say that in the Pentecostal church all the time. Devil's a liar, amen? And then you're all supposed to shout amen, okay? Ready? The devil's a liar, amen? Amen. 
All right. You can say it for anything. Pentecostals slip it into any conversation. The Leafs lost last night. The devil's a liar. Amen? Like, it always kind of works, but not really. But you just say it all the time anyway. But there's just this constant reminder that in John chapter 8, Jesus says the devil is a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. That's who he is. When he lies, he speaks his native language because he's a liar and he's always been a liar. We don't want to be people who believe the lies. We want to be people who believe the truth and seek after it and search for it, as we talked about last week. If you miss any sermons in this series, I encourage you to watch them. They'll all be on our YouTube channel. Uh, if you have to miss a Sunday, just because they kind of build on each other, and I think they're all important. So if you missed last week, make sure you go have a listen later on. All right, let's take a look at our text. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're starting in verse 1. The sermon's called Broken Truth Seekers. Truth is perfect. We who are seeking it are not. We are broken truth seekers. So what can we learn from that today? Starting in verse 1, 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is a local church pastor. He's in charge of a flock, just like the staff here would be. And the Apostle is encouraging his young son in the Lord. And so this is a pastoral call ultimately, but of course it applies to all of us. But the call for the pastor is preach the word, correct, encourage, keep your head. Like that, that can be good advice for all of us. We're all called to be encouraging. We're all called to keep our head. We're all called to endure hardship. But I really want to focus just on... On one phrase, uh, one particular phrase. And in the Greek, it's nathomenoi ten a coin, which means having ears that are itchy or having ears that want to be tickled. And it's a bit of an unusual phrase, but it shows up here, and this is the one I want to talk about. And I mentioned to you last week, there's going to be something in this series where it's very, very tempting to hear what I say and say, oh, that applies to this person. That person over here totally needed to hear that. But I'm not talking to someone else. I'm talking to you, okay? Turn to someone near you and say, he's talking to you. Don't blow this off. This is not for other people. This is for you. This is something we all need to hear. I'm not saying the other person doesn't need to hear it as well, but you need to hear it too. So I don't want anyone dismissing it in the name of, I know someone who really needs to hear it. You really need to hear it, and so do I. So having ears that are itchy, ears that want to be tickled, in the last days, people will turn away from what is true. They will turn away from what is good. They will turn their ears away from God's word, and they will surround themselves with teachers who tell them whatever their itchy, tickly ears want to hear. And so when we talk about this in this passage, we're typically talking about, you know, the types of preachers who say things like sin isn't real or, or this thing isn't a sin. Do what you want. God loves you anyway. That kind of thing. Because our itching ears want to hear that. That's, that's easier to follow than the truth. Because the thing about truth, we should be lovers of the truth. But the truth is often difficult. 
It's often challenging. It's, it's often uh, something we have to wrestle with. And so a time will come, Paul says, when people are going to turn away from truth and they're just going to grab onto whatever makes them comfortable, whatever makes them happy, whatever scratches that itch, whatever that craving is, they're going to grab onto that. The principle of it is that we can all be guilty of, and I think we are all guilty of, is that we have a tendency to hear what we want to hear. We have a tendency to hear what we want to hear. And we are wonderfully creative at finding ways that hard truths don't really apply to us or they apply to other people and not to us. Or that sermon, you know, I just didn't agree with it and therefore I don't need to listen to it. Or that teaching over there was really challenging, but that's just, there's not enough grace, so I don't need to listen to that. Like we're very good at hearing what we want to hear. We're very good at seeking out the things that tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear. And of course, that is true of Scripture. That's the context of our passage. But I think it's true in general. I think whatever we're talking about, uh, it's easy to hear what we want to hear. It is easy for us to latch on to things that already uh, we already believe in, and we just decide that that's the truth, because that's easy for us to handle, and that's easy for us to hear. Because truth is perfect, we are not. We are all dealing with what the Bible calls our flesh. And sometimes when the Bible says flesh, it means literally just our flesh and blood body. But often when the Bible in the New Testament uses the word flesh, it's talking about our sinful side, our sinful nature, our brokenness, our fallenness, the part that fights against what God wants it to do, the part that is selfish, the part that is self-absorbed, the fleshy part of us, the very human part of us that is sinful and cut off from God. And we are in a process of that self being laid down and being restored and being renewed. We call that spiritual formation. But our flesh likes what's comfortable. Our flesh is selfish. Our flesh wants what it wants. Our flesh doesn't like to be challenged. Our flesh wants to do what it wants to do. It doesn't want to follow God. It doesn't want to hear the truth. It doesn't want to sacrifice. It doesn't want to obey. But Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would call themselves a Christian, if anyone would call themselves a Christ follower, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That to follow Jesus is to say, I'm laying myself down. The theological term we'll use for this is death to self. Right? Whatever my flesh wants, whatever my fallenness wants, whatever my sinfulness wants, I'm laying that down so that I can follow after Jesus. He's the boss now. He's the Lord. His word is what I want to know. His truth is what I'm seeking after. I'm going to lay myself down and follow after him. It's a lifelong process, and it's not an easy one. It's so challenging that in Luke's gospel, people would come to follow after Jesus, and Jesus would say, essentially, I don't think you're ready to do this. Are you ready to pay the price? Are you ready to lay yourself down? For a lot of us, the answer will be no. But to follow after Jesus and to follow after his truth is to say, whatever's going on in me, I want to lay that down so that I can follow him better. And so we're laying aside the idea that this message is for other people today, and I want us to take a good look at ourselves. I want you to take a good look at yourself and what's going on in you in this search for truth, not worrying about what other people are going through. This is about Jesus, and it's about you. Two questions I want you thinking about as we go through the sermon today. Number one, what do my itching ears want to hear? Not somebody else. What do my itching ears want to hear? And how might that be affecting my search for truth? Few things about itching ears. Number one, they're not impartial. Itching ears are not impartial. They hear what they want to hear. 
James 3.17 says, wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And so we're going to come back to that verse later in the series, but one of the ways that can help us figure out is this thing that we're looking at true or is it not true, is this God's wisdom or is it not, is by looking at a verse like this and say, well, if it's God's wisdom, these are some of the qualities that will be associated with God's wisdom. One of them is that it's impartial, it's unbiased. It doesn't take sides. Now, we as humans in our flesh, in our fallenness, are very, very biased. We have all sorts of opinions. We have all sorts of perspectives. We have all sorts of preconceived ideas. We are not perfect at this. But wisdom that comes from heaven that's going to help us discern is impartial and it's sincere. We talked last week about Luke when he began Luke's gospel and he began putting it together. He said, I I put this together, Theophilus, after a careful investigation. Luke didn't pre-decide what was going to go there. He did an investigation. Truth requires a search. If we're just automatically believing everything we hear, we're not really doing a careful investigation into truth. And so there's an impartiality, an unbiasedness that we are shooting for. If you were ever going to go before a judge, if you were ever on trial for anything, and you were thinking about, what are some good qualities I would want in that judge? Hopefully you would say, I want a judge who's wise and a judge who knows the law and a judge who is very just. But one of the things for sure you would say is, I want a judge who's fair. I want a judge who's impartial. I wouldn't want a judge who's already pre-decided that I'm guilty before it starts. I would want a judge who's fair and impartial, who would say, I'm going to let the evidence come to me and we will weigh out the evidence fairly and we will see where it's at. Nobody would want a judge who says, I've just already got it figured out. I don't need to hear any evidence. You're guilty without even taking a look at anything, right? To be impartial, to be unbiased. Part of looking at ourself is saying, well, where am I not impartial? What are my biases? Where am I showing these things as we navigate and we search for truth together? John Calvin was a reformer in the 1500s. He said this, true wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of self. And I read that in my schooling and it blew my mind and changed the course of all of my schooling because I just got so uh, amazed at this idea because we focus a lot on the knowledge of God, right? You want to know his word, you want to know his ways, you want to know Jesus. and, And that's crucial, of course. And that's first, even for Calvin, that was first and most important. But Calvin, says you have to know yourself as you know God. Knowing yourself will help you know God. And and the main part of that for Calvin is you need to know that you aren't right with God. You need to know that you're a sinner in need of saving. You need to know that you can't save yourself. You need to know these things about yourself. And so my doctoral work focused on a lot of this idea because I've just noticed in ministry that as God has wired us all differently, we are all approaching God differently. We think differently. We pray differently. We read our Bibles differently. And so how can helping us understand how he's made us and understand our wiring, how can that help us know God better? Calvin's thing was the more you understand yourself, the better you can know God. And the better you know God, the better you'll know yourself as you find your identity in him. And as you find your identity in him, that will help you know him better. And then as you know him better, you're going to get better established in him. And these two things fuel each other. So we need to know who God is, but we also need to know who we are. And that's what I want us focusing on today. 
And if we just focus on ourselves, of course, we become self-centered, but that's not the point. It's not to focus on ourselves so that we can be all about ourselves. It's to focus on ourselves so we can empty ourselves, so we can deny ourselves, so we can be aware of our sin. We can be aware of our prejudices. We can be aware of our biases, and we can actually follow him better as we deny ourselves and walk with him. Itching ears hear what's comfortable. They don't like to be challenged. They don't like to have their ideas uh, pushed on or, or pushed back on. They are very, very comfortable, right? So in the end times, people are going to surround themselves with teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear because they don't want to be challenged. The truth is too hard. It's easier just to hear what you want to hear, to hear what you already agree with. But that's not the call for the Christ follower. Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So the sinful part of us is supposed to be dying as we grow more and more into the person that Jesus has created us to be and is renewing us to become. But this is not a comfortable passage, right? Like it's not, it's, it's tough, right? Put to death these things that are going on in you. That's not light and fluffy. That's not a, an itching ear kind of truth. That's a hard one. And so it's very easy to look at that and kind of skim over it and say, like, well, that's for other people, or, or that doesn't apply to me, because our itching ears want to hear what's comfortable, right? Whatever's comfortable. And truth is not always comfortable. Truth sometimes challenges in a way that is very uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean that it's not truth. Part of my studies have focused on just how our brain works, and it's fascinating. The brain is beyond fascinating, and I am far from an expert in it, but the brain, as you uh, start to learn how it works, I've just always been fascinated about how do we process things, and, and why do certain people process things one way or another way, and, and we are all wired differently. We have different gifts that we bring, but that also causes us to see the world a little differently than people around us, but however we tend to think about things, we're usually pretty positive that we're right, because our thought process is the only one we know, and it's the one that makes the most sense but if somebody thinks differently, that can be really challenging for us. And the brain has this incredible capacity to create and imagine and understand, like far more powerful than any computer. It's this, this incredible thing. One quote I read said, the brain is the only self-aware organ. The brain named itself the brain. Like it gets trippy when you start <laughs> thinking about some of these things. But one of the things the brain is wired for is efficiency. The brain likes things as simple as they can be. And so the brain, our brains make decisions. We believe this is truth. We believe I am right. We believe you are wrong. And our brain really doesn't like anything that challenges what it's decided is truth. And the problem is, because we're broken, we might not be in the truth on everything. We might be misunderstanding something, or we might be out of sorts on something. And so the brain does not like to be challenged. There's a lady in our church, and she came up to me after a sermon one day, and she said, sometimes your preaching makes me so angry. 
And it was kind of, it was jokey, but also kind of not jokey. Like it was said in jest. I knew there was a little truth to it. And to be clear, this woman loves me and is wonderfully supportive. And, and it was not anything, uh, anything of a concern. But, um, but as we talked about it, what came up was uh, she just was struggling with the fact that sometimes there was challenges coming. And, and as I studied the brain, one of the things I learned is when something comes in through the ears that doesn't line up with what we already believe, it triggers the fight or flight part of our brain, and that's where we get angry. So first of all, next time you get angry when you read something or hear something, be aware that there's something chemically happening literally in your brain in that moment to make you feel that way, and if you wait a little while, that will probably calm down. So maybe don't respond to that text right away when you get that angry one. Maybe don't jump into the argument right away. You can let things settle and let some, maybe some reason uh, help you navigate through that. But the brain really does not like to be challenged. And so that gets tricky when one person believes this about politics and that person believes that about politics, right? And it easily becomes a fight and it can become very, very angry. But because we're broken, we don't know for sure whether we've got the right idea unless it's challenged. Like we need to have that back and forth a little bit. We need to have that wrestling. And it's very, very easy to skip that part. And we have a wiring, you know, where our brains don't all process the same way. And so if you are more naturally cautious by nature, and that's just how you're wired. If you maybe lean a bit more towards caution or a bit more towards fear, when you're searching for truth in the age of COVID, that will have an effect on how you search for truth. And you will be more likely to grab onto things that line up with what you already think, but that might just be your caution talking. That might not actually be the truth. For many of you, I've had this conversation over and over again. Uh, you know, how many times have we said in this season, I don't like being told what to do? Right? That's part of the challenge of COVID, right? I don't like being told to stay at home. I don't like to be told about masks. I don't like to be told I can't go to a restaurant. Like, we don't like to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. Now, if my child spoke to me that way, we would call that rebellion. And so what role might that be playing in how we're perceiving truth in the way of COVID? If our itching ears are wanting to hear certain things, if our brain doesn't like to be challenged, we might be more likely to grab onto things that line up with that. Everybody is capable of this, wherever you are at. If you have a more liberal worldview, you're more likely to line up with liberal news. If you have a more conservative worldview, you might be more likely to line up with conservative news. It doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean it's true. It means that we are searching for things that line up with what we already believe and we don't like to be pushed back on. And that's not a good thing. That's not a healthy thing. And so sometimes what happens in life is science starts to catch up to what Scripture said thousands of years ago. Don't you love that when that happens? Scripture says that laughter is good medicine. Eventually, science caught up to that and said, hey, it turns out if you're joyful, you don't get sick as often. And like, oh, we knew that already. God told us that a long time ago. And so science has caught up to the itching ears phenomenon. Uh, you maybe have heard the phrase confirmation bias. Psychologists use it now. And as they have studied the brain, they have really discovered this idea that we do tend to see what we want to see. We tend to hear what we want to hear. And we tend to seek out things that confirm what we already believe. And we tend to block out things that challenge what we already believe. So they're not calling it this, but what they're talking about is itchy ear syndrome. They are talking about we do 
do have this ability to hear what we want to hear and block out things that challenge that. As a quick example of how this can work in the Christian world, if we lived in the southern states in America in the early 1800s, there's a very good chance that we would all be pro-slavery. And that sounds unthinkable. But how did a whole half of a country get fully on board with slavery? Like, how could you possibly look at another human being and say, hey, we're going to put you in chains, and we'll treat you like one of the cattle, and we'll buy and sell you at our will. You're not really a human being. You're a piece of property. How is it possible that people who loved Jesus and who loved their Bible and who were sincerely trying to follow after him fully embraced as a culture this idea of slavery? How was that possible? And we'll talk a bit more about this next week, but the reason, in a nutshell, is they found some scripture that seemed to say that God's okay with slavery. Now, we would say, you got to cherry-pick some things, and you got to ignore a lot of other things, but they found enough scripture that locked into their worldview that they were already holding, and when all your friends own slaves and have for generations, and when preachers from the pulpit are saying slavery's okay, because we have these few verses that we're leaning on, and your whole culture is on board with it, it doesn't mean that it's truth. But it's very, very easy to grab onto it because it is what your world is telling you should be right. And then eventually over time, it got challenged enough and it got challenged enough and it was forced to a breaking point. And of course, slavery is not there anymore. And we would say, right, that's God's truth. God's truth is there. But it took time to get there. And, and the point is not to look down on the southern states and say, man, how could they get it so wrong? What a bunch of idiots. The point is to say, oh, wow, what might I be believing that isn't actually truth? Where might I be going to what my itching ears want to hear and grabbing on to that and holding to that instead? Truth is perfect. We are not perfect who are seeking it. And we need to be humble enough to acknowledge that. And humble enough to say, hey, I wonder where my cultural worldview might be playing a fact in how I look at scripture. I wonder where my natural wiring might be playing a fact in how I pursue truth. I wonder where my sin could be getting into the mix here. I need to be aware of myself so that I can empty myself. I don't know if we ever do it flawlessly in this lifetime, but that is what we're searching for. And what's hard in the time in which we live is that with those worlds of opinions out there and everything that goes with it, you can pick whatever truth you want. And so if you're conservative, you can just listen to conservative voices. And if you're liberal, you can just listen to liberal voices. And if people are posting things in your newsfeed that you don't like, you can just block those people or unfriend them, and you don't even have to expose yourself to it. And rather than saying, hey, I'm not perfect, so maybe it would be good to explore the truth a little bit here, we can just shut out everybody that disagrees with us and every voice that challenges us, and we can handcraft something that we like and that we prefer and that are itching your want to hear, which may not be true. Remember slavery. And we need to be mature enough to grow past that. We need to be mature enough to say, I'm going to do a bit of digging into this, and maybe I don't have it right. Let's talk about this guy for a minute. And I picked him because he obviously provokes emotions on both sides. And honestly, we're not united on, at Meadowbrook on Trump. There are some people who really, really love him here, and there are some people who really, really hate him. And I will say this about Trump. Uh, sometimes you'll hear Americans say, well, he's not my president. 
And what they mean is, like, I don't like him, and he doesn't stand for me, and he doesn't represent me. And, I mean, you want to say to those people, well, he is your president. That's not really how it works. He, in every way, <laughs> legally, is your president. He is the one at the top who was voted in. But I say, as a Canadian, he's not my president. And what I mean is, he's literally not my president. And he's not your president either. And so I am not willing, as the pastor of this church, for a foreign leader to be divisive here. Does that make sense? You're entitled to your opinion, but if it's causing you to break off from brothers and sisters, I'm not willing that a foreign leader should do that here. And so, by all means, have your opinion. But what I want to talk about Trump uh, in this context today is, some of us love him, some of us really don't like him at all, but what does it mean to be impartial in our search for truth? What does that look like? How do we navigate something like that. If you are conservative, you're more likely to like him, and you're more likely to listen to all the conservative voices that also like him. You're more likely to make excuses for the things that he does that maybe aren't as good. If you hate him, you're more likely to emphasize the things about him you don't like. You're more likely to downplay even the good things that he does. You're more likely to surround yourself with voices that agree with you, and you're more likely to dismiss him. And my argument is that whatever side you land on, you don't have the whole truth unless you're really trying to be impartial on both sides. So we should be able to look at a person like President Trump and say, if we're trying to find truth, if we're trying to find what's impartial, if we're trying to find what's unbiased, then I need to lay down whatever personal opinions I may have and try to search for what's impartial. So in terms of what is good, we can look at Trump and say, hey, I'm pro-life. We are a pro-life church. He has done a lot of good things for the pro-life cause in America. He's done a lot of good things for Israel, and we love and bless and support the Jewish people. He's done a lot of good things for peace in the Middle East right now. I Honestly, I wouldn't have thought he had it in him, to be honest, just because of the way he does things. But he has managed to broker some peace with Israel and a couple of nations over there. That's a really, really good thing. And we can debate maybe his role in it, but under his leadership, up until COVID, the American economy was doing very, very well, which helps the Canadian economy. We can find good things no matter how you feel about Trump. Now, some of you right away are saying like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And he said that stuff on the bus, and you're proving the point. Is don't rush ahead to that yet? Can we truly objectively say that there's some good there? Yeah, I think of course we can. Now, on the flip of that, we should also be able to say, he sometimes says things that are pretty terrible. I wouldn't want my kids to talk to people the way he sometimes talks to people. And he's got an ego, right? And a lot of stuff becomes about him and his ego needs. And that's maybe not the best quality for a leader. And right away, the defenders are saying, no, but he's just a straight shooter, and that's why we love him. And I'm going, no, just wait. We're laying that stuff aside. We're trying to. Again, I don't think we do it perfectly. But if we're truly seeking to be impartial, we should be able to do that. Because if my itching ears want to hear he's an idiot, then I'll hear that. If my itching ears want to hear he's a hero, then I'll hear that. We're wanting to lay our itching ears aside and try to perceive where is the real truth and where is it truly impartial, not just what's comfortable and not just what I want to hear. Last point, we're almost done. I'm going to race through this now. Itching ears don't search for the truth. Itching ears stop searching for the truth. They just hear what they want to hear, and then they're done. But the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10, and then verse 12, we know in part, he's talking about knowing Jesus, we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, 
Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And we believe he is talking about when we see Jesus face to face. When we see Jesus face to face, we'll know everything. Right now, we know in part. Right now, we get a picture. We get a glimpse like a reflection in a mirror. We perceive Christ by faith now. There will come a day when we know him fully, when we are face to face, and we will see him in the fullness of who he is. But the Apostle Paul, who I think arguably knew Jesus better than most, right? He had seen Jesus face to face. He had been caught up into heaven. He had seen the dead raised and incredible miracles. The Spirit breathed the scriptures through him. Like the Apostle Paul knew Jesus well, better than many of us. And even Paul says, but I know in part, I don't know everything when it comes to Jesus. I, I have not seen the fullness of who he is. That will happen one day. And if Paul has enough humility to acknowledge, uh, I, I only know in part about Jesus, then we all need to be able to say that about knowing Jesus. And I think we all need to be able to say that about just about everything. No one knows it all. Who loves the know-it-all at a party? Nobody likes that person. You don't want to be that person. We talked last week about a phrase that's been helpful in my life. It says, I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Four simple words. I try to say this to myself if I'm arguing with my wife. I try to say this to myself if I'm discussing theology with someone. I try to say this to myself if there's a political discussion going on. I just, I want to be humble and I want to be teachable. And it doesn't mean we don't have convictions. It doesn't mean that we're just wishy-washy and you say, well, you might be wrong, so nothing really matters. It's no, it's just there's a humility of posture that says, I don't know everything. And if you want to talk about something, we can talk about it in a reasonable way. When I went away to school, one of the best things about going to Tyndale was Tyndale is a, it's an ecumenical school. It's not one denomination. It's all denominations coming together. And so sitting in a class, I could have an Anglican over here and a Wesleyan over here and a Methodist over here and a Baptist over here and a Presbyterian over here. And you're all wrestling through the scriptures together and you don't agree on them all, but it's beautiful because we agree that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is alive. And that's the most important thing. Other things we can wrestle on together. So in one class, I had to give a presentation on our faith tradition. So I was presenting on Mennonites. And I was talking about believer's baptism, that we believe that baptism is something that you should choose to do. We don't believe in infant baptism because the Bible says, uh, repent of your sins, follow Jesus. Like you, you choose to turn away from your sin. You choose to follow Jesus. Parents can't do that for a child. And there's no example of infant baptism in scripture. So we believe in what's called believer's baptism. Once you've decided to follow Jesus, you should get baptized as a sign of that. And so I'm sharing my presentation on this. As I sit down, I say, are there any questions? 15 hands shoot up. Everybody in the room has questions. And the reason is, I'm actually the only one in the room who believes in believer's baptism. Everyone else comes from an infant baptism tradition. And so what began there was a very awesome, respectful conversation. We disagreed on a biblical issue. We talked about the scriptures. We pushed back and forth. It was a very, very good conversation. We laughed. We pushed. We received. We listened. We challenged. We came back. We were all still friends at the end of it who loved Jesus and loved each other because you know what? When you're a grown-up, you can disagree in that way. It's possible. And we finished the discussion. If anything, I was more grounded in my belief that believer's baptism is right. And yet I had learned so much about the other side where I went, you know what? I disagree, but I respect it. I understand it differently now. I'm not looking down on people where, you know what? I probably was a little bit before 
going, there's no infant baptism in the Bible. How can you possibly arrive at that conclusion? And then you heard their side of it and the scriptures that they are pointing to and where their traditions have led them. And you go, well, I don't agree with it, but I, I feel like I love you a little more maybe in this. I've learned something in this. And my conviction actually got stronger. But you had to have an attitude that said I might be wrong so that you could actually open up enough to have the discussion. In Acts chapter 17, Paul arrives at Berea, and he shares the gospel with Jewish people there for the first time. And it says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Verse 11. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And so these are Jewish people, and Paul is also a Jewish man who has now found Jesus. And as they are wrestling with the scriptures, they are waiting for their Messiah. And they're waiting for a Messiah who's going to look an awful lot like King David. They're expecting a warrior king who's going to come and kick out the Romans and be established in his throne in Jerusalem and rule from there as the, as the kings did in the past. And Paul comes into this place, and Paul says, all right, guys, you've been waiting for the Messiah. I'm here to tell you about him. He's been here. You, you guys didn't be, you weren't a part of it because it happened in Jerusalem, but he's been here. And as he came, he didn't really look like David in the natural that much at all. Uh, he wasn't a warrior. He, he actually was, he taught us to love our enemies. And he didn't come with an army. He came very, very humbly and meekly. And he didn't come as king in luxury. He actually came really, really poor. But he traveled the country and he preached the news of the kingdom and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he taught us to love one another. And he died, but then he actually rose again and now he has ascended to heaven and he reigns as king. The Messiah that you've been waiting for has come. And if you've been around church for a while, you know that story already that I just told you. You know the gospel. You know the roots of it. But man, to hear that for the very first time, right? If you've grown up in church, it's lost on you. But for the Berians, this is a man coming in saying, all your beliefs about scripture, the heart of them were true, but you got most of the details wrong. Jesus didn't line up in that way, but he still fulfilled all the scripture. And now we are to follow him as our Lord and as our Messiah. And the Bereans received the message with great eagerness. They turned off the part of the brain that said, no, that's a new idea. I don't like it. They were able to listen, and we would say the Spirit enabled them to do that, but they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scripture every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. So they didn't throw away their convictions. They went digging for truth. When a new idea came, it caused them to dig for the truth. They weren't wishy-washy. They weren't saying, I might be wrong. Who knows? Maybe he's the Savior. Maybe he's not. They went, okay, here's the idea. Let's go find what the truth really is. It provoked them to dig in to God to figure out what truth is. Come on up, worship team. We're about ready to wrap up here. So we want to know ourselves and understand ourselves. We want to know where we're weak. We want to know what we bring to the table. We want to know where our sin might be playing a factor in all of this. We might we want to be aware enough of ourselves that we can empty ourselves and say, "Okay, I don't like this idea, but the way my brain works, I probably wouldn't like that idea anyway." So that doesn't mean that it's automatically not true. So how can I take a look at this and try to empty myself out and and wrestle through that and dig in for where the truth really is? Here's a few questions for you to ponder this week. So I already asked you, what do my itching ears want to hear? Don't put it off on someone else. What do your itching ears naturally want to hear on any given topic? And how might that be affecting my search for truth? 
How about this? When was the last time I acknowledged that I was wrong about something? I love asking people that question. I don't mean in your own head. I mean, you admitted to somebody. You confessed that you were wrong about something. You said to your spouse or to a friend, someone you were arguing with, you went back and said, you know what? I think I was wrong about this and you were right. And I like to ask that question because that shows me that you're humble if you can do that. It shows me that you're teachable. It shows me that you're actually serious about growing in your faith and in truth. What role might my personal sins be playing? and how I am perceiving truth. We're really good at making excuses when it comes to our sins. We're really good at making excuses. So what role does my sin play in how I'm perceiving truth, whatever that may be? And where am I allowing the Lord to convict me, to reveal myself, to expose myself? Where am I digging into his word and letting his word challenge me in truth? Where am I allowing his spirit? Where am I presenting myself to the Holy Spirit to do that? Where am I letting other people speak into my life who might see things that I don't see? And I'm actually inviting people to speak into what they see. Where am I opening myself up? I don't want to be self-centered, but I need to understand what role myself is playing so that I can empty myself and deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. In John 18, 37, Jesus said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify on the side of truth or testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So if we are to be followers of Jesus, we are to be people of the truth. And in the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about exactly how do we do that practically. But if we want to be on his side, we need to be on the side of truth. And that's going to mean laying aside some of my preconceived ideas, laying aside some of my notions. The Pharisees were so sure they had God figured out that they missed the Messiah that they were waiting for when he was right in front of them. They weren't willing to lay anything aside and they missed the truth as it stood right there. We don't want to be like that. We want to be full of his truth, the word of truth, the Christ of truth, the spirit of truth. And that'll be the next few weeks as we dig into that. But would you stand with me, please? We're going to lift up our voices in truth as we worship him in spirit and in truth together today. As we lay aside ourselves and as we fix our eyes on him, please sing with us. The words will be on the screen.